The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. Lord, our great God, we confess along with Daniel that you are great and awesome. You have kept your covenant promise to your people to be our God, to protect, to provide for us. And even though we have rebelled and sinned against you, even this week, you still call us to yourself. For you are ready with mercy and forgiveness. You truly are a great and awesome God. And so along with your people around the world, we come here to worship you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen. amen. So one of the main differences between wisdom and folly is timing. Wisdom is willing to wait and work for the longer term satisfaction. Folly craves the immediate, the cheap and easy, the feel good, the pop it in the microwave and 90 seconds later it's done. And if I could borrow a culinary metaphor, folly is a pepperoni hot pocket. <laughs> you know what I mean. You're choosing the immediate convenience over long-term satisfaction and possibly life. When you're hungry, instead of taking the time to plan, to prep, to preheat, cook, find a plate, find a fork, you choose the hot pocket. It's quick, simple, convenient. And there is nothing morally wrong about hot pockets. But we do apply this thinking to lots of areas of our life. Right? The kids are acting up, they're getting annoying, and so you pacify them with the movie. You buy them the toy. You indulge the candy. What's that? Hot pocket parenting for your quick convenience. Or perhaps you indulge in financial hot pockets. Right? Money is tight, but you really want something right now. And instead of waiting and working, you pop it on the credit card. Or perhaps you try hot pocket friendships where you want immediate attention, and so you brag, or you try to buy friends, or you flirt, or you dress scantily. All of this is folly. And though it promises, and it may even provide short-term happiness, it all ends in ruin. Wisdom, on the other hand, looks ahead to the longer outcome, and then, the, then does the obedient, and often the difficult thing right now. Even though it may seem easier to pacify the fussy toddler, wisdom gets up, disciplines the sin, because dad knows that it will be better for everyone five, 10, 20 years from now. Wisdom trusts that if you start slogging through the financial debt, then your family will have so much more financial freedom in the future. Wisdom avoids the cheap, and counterfeit friends and puts in the time and the work for true friendships. The results of wisdom do not usually come in 90 seconds. Right? You don't get the ding, it's done. Right? Wisdom is obedience to God over the weeks and months and maybe even years. And often you can't see what God is cooking for you. That's re that is why wisdom requires faith, requires trust. Trust in God, trust in his word. So when folly is offering you this hot pocket solution, right, 
be wise and trust that that what God is preparing is perfectly good and will perfectly satisfy and is worth the wait. This is Daniel chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Our Father, we confess that we have sinned against you. We have chosen folly over wisdom by choosing our own convenience over obedience to you. As parents, we pander to our own peace rather than the work and responsibility of training our kids or we grasp after material possessions or attention from others or sexual fulfillment because we can't wait, we won't wait. This is selfishness and impatience, and it leaves us sick. Forgive us for our folly and failure to trust in you and your perfect timing. And we now confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. And we ask all of this through the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. This is from Isaiah 33. It says, And the inhabitants will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. It seems fitting that in the one exhortation where I, I talk about overindulgent in hot pockets. The assurance of God's promises is that when you confess your sin to God, you will not be sick. So if you have come and confessed your sins to God, then you will be restored because your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. Please remain standing as we read our sermon text. Our sermon today is coming from Philippians 3, verses 12 through 21. beginning 12 not that I've already attained or am already perfected but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me brethren I don't count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus therefore let us as many as are mature have this mind And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let us pray. 
Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you that you, you have condescended to connect yourself to your creation. We stand in wonder that you would call us your children and give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit open the eyes of our hearts to understand your assurances of love and power because we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, this last week I was in a discussion with someone, and um, it was about uh, choosing a Bible verse that we might consider our life verse. Our life verse. And uh, his verse was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, do you recognize that? Well, it's from the thief on the cross next to Jesus who asked it. And Jesus responded, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this person's selection was made to emphasize his complete dependence on the grace of God as a sinner with absolutely nothing to add to Christ's work. Now, while I thought that was a reasonable selection, I felt like it was looking too much to the past or at least not looking forward in this life enough for what God has for us. The thief didn't get off the cross alive. And while I'm confident that he joined in Jesus in paradise, it just didn't seem quite as, as a, a, a practical or as applicable to someone who's still living with many productive years in front of them. Well, so this verse came to my mind. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, this cry was of the father with the demon-possessed demon boy who Jesus healed as he came off the Mount of Transfiguration as it talks about in Mark 9, 24. Now, this father's cry, I think, was just as desperate as that of the thief on the cross. But it also remains very applicable because I believe our chief failing is to doubt God's power and his plan as we continue to live and hopefully be used by God to advance his purposes. So this life, this life verse, may be helpful to keep in view as we consider Paul's passage here. Now, as we look at the passage in front of us and Paul's self-analysis, we very much get the sense that he's looking forward and he's moving forward. He's not going backwards. It doesn't even look like he's looking backwards. His stated purpose was to press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. And so, if we're to imitate Christ, <clears throat> uh, if we're to imitate Paul in this regard, we need to better understand that call and the motivation behind it. As a bit of a preview, I've broken this passage down to three three sections. So the first section, verses 12 to 14, has to do with understanding and imitating Paul's striving. The second section is in verses 15 to 19, where he's talking about how to present our minds as mature in Christ. And the third section, 20 to 21, is answering the question, well, what's so important about citizenship? What's so important about heavenly citizenship? Well, let's start with the striving part. Now, does it seem a bit out of place that Paul emphasizes this striving in this passage? Now, haven't we been pounding home the fact that we are saved by grace through faith alone? We have nothing to add. Uh, as Ty said last week, your blue box of trophies, uh, that is if you actually have any trophies, but if you do have a blue box of trophies, they're mostly just painted plastic. And uh, it's just, they're not worth anything. Certainly in the scheme of things, they're not worth anything. And, <clears throat> and as I'm looking at this passage, I very much get the sense that Paul is very much a perfectionistic kind of guy. You know, guys didn't become Pharisees 
unless I think they had certain characteristics in that regard. I mean, they had to go the extra mile. Consider all the number of rules they had to learn and the, and the memorization of the, of the Torah. Uh, and they even drew many, many extra lines just to kind of keep them kind of crossing over the edge. And, and we know that Paul was successful, successful in following the rules of a Pharisee from a very early age. He even studied under the great Gamaliel. So when Paul starts talking about striving, you may begin to get the sense of, whoa, you know, I'm feeling tired just talking about this. And if you're tender-hearted, your, your, your consciousness might already start to be burdening you. It's like, you know, one, I'm not Paul, and even if I was, I couldn't strive quite like this guy is striving. And then again, if you're a perfectionist in the congregation, <clears throat> you might be already judging yourselves for not trying hard enough. You should try harder. No, no. Let me, let me get to that. <clears throat> now, Paul also could, uh, you know, in the same way that Paul is uh, righteously bragging earlier on in the chapter to the Judaizers, saying, look, you, you, got, you don't got nothing on me. Uh, circumcised, I mean, it was tribe of Benjamin, circumcised in the eighth day, Pharisee of Pharisees, you got nothing on me. Well, in the same way he's bragging against those guys, he can brag out any of us. Think about all the trouble and the persecutions he suffered. And so it's just no good plucking up our consciences uh, when we read things like this. Instead, we want to make sure we really understand in context what he means by striving. <clears throat> the reason for this is that we don't want to do the wrong kind of striving. You know, this is a famous Jim Wilson passage. It's trust, not try. You know, we want to be trusting in God, not trying, not striving, not kind of working to do it on our own merit. And let me give you a, just a personal example from when I was, uh, when I was younger. I, I graduated from a Christian school, kind of like Logos, and I went into public school, and that was like the next six years of hell for me, you know. So I kind of went into a shell, and, uh, and uh, you know, I... I would go straight from school to home. I'd watch my three hours of Gilligan's Island and Star Trek and Lost in Space. <clears throat> you know, for you younger people, just to give you some context, that's like going home and just following your Instagram feed for three hours. That's what it's like. Just as mindless. And then I would have dinner and I'd spend another three hours, you know. Anyway, the end of all this was that I ended up being a total and absolute loser. And so having recognized this, it's like, I got to strive. I got to, like, change my ways. I got to pull myself up on my bootstraps. And so I began reading those self-help books. I, I joined a, a club, began lifting weights, you know, build some, build some muscles, which I didn't have, you know, take a speech and debate class, and running for school offices. I was focused, and I was striving, a very earthly-oriented striving. You know, and to some degree, I reaped a benefit from that. I... Uh, I think I began to be a little bit more popular. I got a little bit more outside of myself. But at the end of the day, it didn't change my heart. I was still just as lonely, just as empty, just as hope, uh, helpless inside, despite all of my striving. Well, that kind of striving is not the kind of striving that Paul's talking about here. That's the kind of stuff he was doing when he was a Pharisee, when he was studying under Gamaliel, when he was a young man, when he was persecuting Christians. That's the kind of striving that Paul was doing. But to understand the kind of, Paul, the kind of striving that Paul's doing now, Let's take a look at what he said beginning back in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter. Hopefully you remember some of these verses that we've already looked at. The first one is in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So we've talked about before. He who began a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So who began the good work in you? Lone voice. The Lord, or God. God. God started that work in you, and who's going to bring it to the day of completion? Who's going to make it happen? God's going to make it happen. You know, Ty, give me a little more lessons here on how to get a little more enthusiasm out of the, out of the crowd. You know, I just don't have it, man. I just don't have it. That's why I didn't have as many trophies as Ty has in his little blue box. 
So I need to strive harder. That's what it is. <clears throat> no, it's God who began the good work in you. It's God who will bring his completion. It's God who is making that happen. It's God's inexorable plan to conform us to the image of his son, to make us more like Jesus, using everything, all of our experiences, all of our relationships, everything that's happening to bring that about. That's his good purpose for us. Now, we also discussed in my sermon two weeks ago about a striving that Paul does, in fact, encourage us to do, you know, straight in the text. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul exhorted us to do this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, yes, Paul is exhorting us to strive, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But before we kind of jump the gun, it's like, no, that's what you just said. That wasn't what it's all about. We want to make sure we understand what he means by work out our salvation. Now, Paul isn't talking about our salvation in terms of justification. So there's a difference. Justification is being made right by God. We are saved by grace alone without any works of merit. It's God who justifies. It's God who makes us right, who, who sets us and calls us just. That's salvation when we're declared right before God by God. But the process of salvation doesn't stop at our justification. It then follows this process called sanctification. So we're justified, we're made right, we're put in relationship, right relationship with God, and then we're sanctified. And that process is to be made more like Jesus. We are being made holy in our walk, how we live, how we're being set apart from the world so we no longer feel at home in this world. We're being changed. But again, who is doing the heavy lifting? It says it is God who is at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God who is doing the heavy lifting. We are to work out our salvation, the sanctification process, but it's God who's working both to will and to do. Now, Paul summarizes that thought in verse 12 of chapter 3. He says this, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now, God took hold of Paul to make him more like Jesus. He took hold of Paul to proclaim the gospel to the known world. He took hold of Paul to write most of the New Testament. He took hold of Paul to bring him to a position of suffering through all the different trials that he had, and ultimately to call him home. And God empowered Paul by his Holy Spirit to do all those things. So Paul is really striving to what I would say, hold on tight. You know, we had our uh, grandkids with us this weekend, and so, you know, we're giving them, like, piggyback rides. And what do you tell the child who's on your back? It's like, get ready for the piggyback ride, and this hold on tight. Now, you've got a hold of that child. You're not thinking, I'm going to just drop this child on the street, you know, something like that. You've got them, in your, and you're bouncing them, and you're having a good time. But you tell the child, hang on tight. Hang on tight. Well, this is the picture I think Paul is using here. He's like, I'm taking hold of God for which he also took hold of me. I'm hanging on tight. He's, run, he's running, and I'm hanging. I'm hanging on. But he's got hold of me. Now, we know when Jesus became a man, he became a human. He became just like one of us. And he didn't take advantage of his full divinity, but rather when he was doing his miracles, it says the Holy Spirit was working in him. Sometimes he came into an area, and the Bible said the Holy Spirit wasn't going to allow him to do miracles in that area. Other times, he was healing all the multitudes. And so when he did it, he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you see where this places us. We are human, just like Jesus. We're limited in our humanity, but we have something that he has as well. We have the Holy Spirit. We have his Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is just acknowledging this belief and striving to be totally aligned with God's mission, including when he says, I'm pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Now, are you ready to share in that belief? The belief that you're human, but you have the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as, just as the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul had the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus said that when he returned to sit at the Father's right hand, that he would send the counselor. He would send the Holy Spirit to be with us. Do you believe it? Perhaps you need my life verse, which is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Well, this brings us to what Paul then says, if you're going to strive like this, I want you to strive with mature minds, with mature minds. So you get the sense of Paul's plan for us. He's supporting all this striving by having this attitude that he just described, but consider well what Paul's taking hold of. He wants us to take a hold of that for which God took hold of us. He wants to be aligned with God's will. This he calls having the same mind. And if, <clears throat> if you think about it, that's the central theme of the first two chapters of Philippians, and that's what we covered uh, two weeks ago, that we want to have the same mind of Christ, who emptied himself, he entered his creation as one of us, the picture of per perfect humility. That's what the mind that call, uh, Paul calls us to. And what I hope to communicate with Paul's exhortation is that the key to this obedience, the key to having the same mind as Christ, is understanding, being convinced in belief that we are in fact in Christ, that we're in fact in Christ, and that we in fact have his Holy Spirit in us. Those two things are absolutely foundational to having the same mind. In fact, it's, it's by necessity. You know, if you, if you don't think that, you're going to be thinking differently. You're going to be moving farther away from the source of singularity, the singularity of knowing I'm in Christ, I'm his child, I'm in him, and I have his Holy Spirit. Moreover, we're not convinced that we have the power of the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives how can we expect to make much progress? How can we expect to hang on? How can we expect to strive if God's not there to will and to do? So do you believe this? Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Jim Wilson likes to highlight how it's easy to be aligned as long as we keep the commands kind of pretty kind of simple in, in Scripture. So, for example, you might say, you know, as Christians, we can all be aligned on evangelism. Why? Well, because it's part of the Great Commission. Pretty straightforward, right? You know, go to the world, make disciples of all nations. <clears throat> well, it's easy if we're all uh, focused on something very straightforward like that. But to have the same mind as Jesus, to be like Jesus, should be hard to argue as well. And Paul calls it maturity to have that mind. And he knows that God, if necessary, is going to jump in and let you know that you're off track if that's the case, should you have a different opinion. In this section about maturity, Paul's also a bit nervous. He says, you know, you know our example. You've seen how we live. You've seen how we talk. You've seen what's important, how we emphasize the gospel. But there's some of these people who don't follow our pattern. Perhaps these are the Judaizers he's talking about in the first part of that chapter. Remember when uh, Ty talked about who the Judaizers were. They were trying to get the new believers to not just believe in Jesus, but to also follow all the regulations of the, of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish tradition, including circumcision. Perhaps it's about them, but also it could be those who are caught up in the world, caught up in earthly things, such that they've lost sight of their upward call in Christ Jesus. They've, they've lost their zeal for seeking God's will, for having that same mind, for understanding that they're really born again in Christ, that they really have the Holy Spirit. Well, we can take further guidance about maturity from a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 5.14, which says this, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish from good and evil. Here, maturity is linked with constant use. You know, that makes sense. Whatever you, put in whatever you put your time into, you're going to be a lot better at. In fact, I think I read this one thing. If you put 10,000 hours in anything, you will become an expert in that. But just how many hours are 10,000 hours? 
know, if you work 24 hours a day on this thing that you're trying to work on, it'd take you 27 years. And given that some of us might have to sleep and some of us might get tired of practicing, maybe you only put in eight hours a day. That's 75 years. Now you see why then Paul says, I haven't made it. I haven't become perfect. I'm still, I'm still taking hold of Jesus for what Jesus has taken hold of me. You know, this, this idea of coming to the same mind as Christ, to continually walking in the presence of the Holy Spirit, is something that Paul says, I'm still hanging on to that. I'm still striving for that. I'm still reaching for that every single day because that's about constant use. That's what brings about maturity. Not just kind of knowing the rules, but clinging on to and striving for that relationship, that constant security of knowing I'm in Jesus Christ and that the Holy Spirit is here in my heart. Now, if you were to analyze your own feelings and motives, where would you fall on a scale of 1 to 10 between the cares of this world and this upward call of Christ Jesus that uh, Paul is talking about? Well, if you're like me, it likely swings, you know, depending on kind of what's happening. If things are going really well, you're like, or things are going really bad usually, uh, you're like, God, help me. You know, you, you, you almost feel like you're, you're, it almost takes a trial sometimes to bring us close to God, to bring us in a position where we are calling out to God and feeling close to him. But other times when things are going super well, we're like Jeshua and we wax fat, we kick, we feel too comfortable, we kind of get distracted. Well, this is where I think it's important to point out that the real work here then is centered on belief. It's centered on belief. How am I perceiving the world around me? How do I understand my relationship to God? What's really important to me? What brings out thanksgiving from my heart? When someone asks me to be more godly, like if you happen to visit with Jim, do you want to be more godly? <clears throat> does this make your heart sore or does it make your heart feel sore? Does it make your heart sore or does it make your heart feel sore when you're asked about being more like Jesus? Perhaps this is the time you need to call out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, one of the key objects of our belief, if this is the key, if this is the importance, understanding this, this relationship is the most important thing, it brings us to our third section in this passage where Paul deals with the question of citizenship. I'll just reread the two verses. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the workings by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. He's able to subdue all things to himself. Well, you might remember um, Chris Ann and, and Tim McElroy, you know, they, they attended CCD when we were first getting started. Well, Tim's now working out of uh, Coeur d'Alene. They attend Trinity Church up there. About three weeks ago, I saw on Facebook that he uh, became a citizen, American citizen. Remember, he's a Canadian. And, uh, and he had a you know, big celebration. He talked about how it had been years and years and years working after they got married to get through all that process. And you think to yourself, why not just stay a Canuck? You know, why not just stay a Canadian, eh? But <clears throat> whatever, he must have seen more value in becoming an American. You know, American citizenship does bring some values. You can, you can work here. You know, you don't have to have, like, the visa thing. You can vote. You can have some influence on the government. And you can even uh, have better protection. I mean, if you happen to go to North Korea at the wrong time, uh, you know, maybe someone's going to try to help you get back out of there, dead or alive, but they'll get you back out. Well, we've seen that happen. So citizenship has some value. Well, we have two children also and, uh, that are from Canada, born in Canada, yeah, and two that were born in Ethiopia, so we have like a multicultural uh, thing going on in our family. And one day, they may, they may have, they make it make, I tried to get my wife to have a child in, in Brazil too, it didn't work out, that's not the problem. I was just trying to spread things around, but, <clears throat> you know, someday they're going to have to come to, they might come to a point saying, maybe I should reevaluate my citizenship, maybe I shouldn't be an American, maybe I should go back north or I should go to Africa, I don't know. 
But in the, in the end, they're going to have to evaluate the value of that citizenship versus what they currently have. Now, Paul, in, in, uh, in the New Testament, a number of times he has to use his Roman citizenship uh, for his benefit, right? It's like, hey, don't beat me. I'll just tell you the truth. I'm a Roman citizen. You know, you don't have to, like, beat me to get the truth out of me. And they're, whoa. Or, uh, you know, so, or gets out of jail in Philippi here. You know, it's like, hey, I'm a Roman. You can't treat me like this. So Paul understood the value of his Roman citizenship. But in this passage, he's saying, that's got nothing on my heavenly citizenship. My heavenly citizenship is much more important than my Roman citizenship. He ranks it much higher. And he makes it uh, in this previous chapter, in chapter 2, Paul went overboard to make it clear that nothing, well, in the previous part of this chapter, in the top part, uh, Paul went overboard to make it clear that nothing that he had achieved or he owned in this life was worth anything compared to the value of knowing and being known by Jesus. He called all those earthly possessions rubbish, like Ty's dog poop trash can. That's what they were. And, uh, you know, Ty has some of the best analogies. I just love that, you know. I feel like I have to steal a couple of them because they're so good, you know. <clears throat> well, as for his audience in Philippi, Paul considered them to be of the same identity. He says, hey, you, you brothers and sisters here in Philippi, we're in the same boat. We're in the same citizenship. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, you are all partakers of grace with me. You, we've all partaken of the same grace. And in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. We're just like, you don't, we don't, you don't, even as Gentiles, the Jews have nothing on you. We are all God's children. So, you know, when, when the mention of Abraham about the baptism, it's like when, when uh, Isaac was uh, circumcised, um, he was uh, kind of covenantly identified with Abraham. Well, that same identification of Abraham's faith happens in baptism and, and as we trust in the Lord. So we are all the same circumcision, Paul says, who worship God in the spirit. Well, identity, the citizenship, this identity is the starting and the ending point. And in verse 20, Paul points up to us he points us to this hope because of its expected outcome. He says, we're all part of the same citizenship. It's really important, and this is why. This is what's going to happen. He says, the transformation of our lowly body will happen that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Our lowly body will be transformed in the glorious body of the Lord Jesus, like the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul accepts this very soon. Earlier in Philippi, he's saying, I'm being poured out for you guys like a drink offering. My life is coming to its end. I'm being poured out. He's anticipating this. His broken and spent body with his fleshly thorn, it will be transformed into a heavenly body, he says. And that's why he's yearning, and he's working for it so hard. He's desiring it so much. He says in verse 311, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's why I've jettisoned all the stuff that was my past. I just, and everything I was hanging on to, it's gone. It just is meaningless, whether it was like super, you know, kind of like politically and socially cool stuff, like being a Pharisee of Pharisees, or whether it be I'm just seeing all the, the, the garbage and the, the death and destruction that I pursued in my earlier life. I'm, I'm rejecting all of that for the, for the value of knowing the Lord Jesus and knowing that my body is going to be transformed. Well, um, this is why Paul's yearning. He's working for it so hard. And think about it. Paul didn't just give up everything he had worked for as a Pharisee for some willy-nilly idea. He was convinced of his true citizenship in heaven. He was convinced. His true identity was in heaven. And so he concludes that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. That's, again, his folk. I want to lay hold of it. I want to hold on tight. Now, if this link between identity and outcome is not convincing enough, consider Paul's argument from the letter of Romans. This is Romans 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. See that, that picture? His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, well, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's our heavenly citizenship. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed in us. Paul believed that and Paul lived that. He was convinced. Now our hope is firmly grounded in our identity. We are identified as children of God who are led by the Spirit of God. We are heirs. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our patria is in heaven. Our longing is that our shame, our weakness, our suffering will all be swallowed up in victory in Christ. And given that we are confronted by the suffering and the difficulties of this life, we can get distracted and our faith may need to be uh, strengthened, fertilized, so we can hold on to God who has taken hold of us for his purposes. And we might need to do that by calling out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So in summary, a week ago, I was talking with a couple about one of their children who was causing some trouble at school. I'm sure that's never happening here. <clears throat> they were preparing for a teacher-administrator conference later in the week, and they wanted to get some advice before going to that meeting. Now, in the course of the discussion, I asked them, I said, well, what's going on? What's the, what are the actions? You know, what brought about the circumstances? And, they, and, uh, and some of the things that they included about their son was that, well, you know, he has a really critical attitude about the school. And uh, his argument, he's got an argumentative spirit, and it's led to, like, blame shifting, and he's not responsible for it. It's all somebody else's fault. And a general lack of gratitude. He wasn't very thankful for anything. Well, after listening, I asked him if any of these characteristics were evident in their own lives. That is, uh, was your son just patterning the same thing he saw in you? Now, at this point, the conversation became more complicated. And <laughs> so, anyway, so... Instead of the focus on their son, the spotlight of God's word was suddenly turned on their lives. Now, positively, they were, they were receptive <clears throat> to this review, and they came to the conclusion that, sure enough, there were some of these things that they thought maybe he was patterning. They regularly were very verbally critical of their school and its staff, and I knew the husband well enough to know that he did his own share of blame shifting, and he was also very, uh, he played the libertarian political card to an extreme, or a libertarian card to, like, hey, a mega extreme. And both of them expressed a lack of thankfulness in their lives. They were both convicted. They were, you know, it's like, man, we really maybe are doing a lot of these things that we're thinking that it's all our son's problem. Now, at this point, the penny drops. And it's like, oh, no. We passed a point of hopelessness. We've done this too much. There's no hope for the future. I don't think we can, you know, what do we do? It's like, huh, what, you know, what do we do now? <clears throat> they wonder if there's a little too, too little too late. They're tempted to look back and to see such a pile of sin that it just doesn't seem possible to have any hope of real change. Has anybody experienced that? You know, where you, you look back and you're like, I got such a pile of sin, I don't think there's any hope for any change for me. What do I do? Well, I like to say that sanctification is just one confession away. Sanctification is just one confession away. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just, forgive us our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And following confession, where do we start? Paul says, brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I'm not doing my 75 years yet. But one thing I do, I forget those things that are behind, and I'm reaching forward to those things that are ahead. That's his approach. Did Paul have some sin in his life? You bet he did. All that striving to the Pharisee. All that murdering and, and, uh, and dragging Christians into prison and killing people? Did he have anything to, uh, you know, in a, a baggage in his backpack? You bet he did. But he says, I forget all that. It's all gone. It's all cleansed. I'm looking forward to the upward call. 
Now, getting things right is just one confession away. God says that he will cleanse all of our unrighteousness. It's done. So we can look forward. Forgetting those things behind, Paul says, reaching forward those things that are ahead. Fixing things is only a confession away. When you discover unearthed sin, old or new, its cleansing is only a confession away. But you might say, well, my, sin, my sin is special. <clears throat> it's deeply entrenched. You don't know how dirty my heart is. Nobody knows the bad things I've done. I, I don't want to know the bad things you've done. True. But this is what we do know. We have a God in heaven. And look what Paul says. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Even to subdue all things to himself. He says he will do it according to the power that is able to subdue all things to himself. Now, who are you to think that your sin is bigger than this? Who are you to think that, that your sin is bigger, that God can't subdue all things to himself? Same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He said, that's what's going to be applied in your life. Do you believe this? Are you having trouble believing this? Then take up a life verse. Maybe take up two life verses. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the second one, which is also practical, is from our Lord, which is what you're about to do, do quickly. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father in heaven, may the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ ring in our hearts that we might be one as you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Help us in our infirmities to believe and to live the truth of the security of being in Christ, your beloved Son. Continue to conform us to his image, giving us the mind of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's message, I touched briefly on the difference between justification and sanctification. Again, we are justified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and nothing else. We have this by faith alone in Christ's finished work on our behalf. Our justification is a new birth as a child of God, but what happens with every child? They grow, they mature, they pattern their parents. They take on their parents' attributes and they grow under their parents' discipline. In the same, we are sanctified after justification. We grow to be more like our Lord Jesus. Now, this supper represents both of these concepts. The bread that we break represents the broken body of Christ. The wine that we drink represents the shed blood of the new covenant of the cross. These are pictures. They're reminders of the great truth that he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. By his stripes we have been healed. This is our weekly picture of justification, being made perfect in Christ. Our Heavenly Father now sees us in Christ, perfect. And this meal is also a picture of sanctification as we come weekly to renew covenant with God. Now, how's that? During this meal, we are commanded to perceive the body of Christ. We're commanded to see the body of Christ as one connected group of brothers and sisters in Christ. As his body, we're reminded that we are truly in Christ and we are at, fellowship, at a fellowship meal with our Heavenly Father. We are accepted in Christ to sit with God, to eat and to drink in perfect fellowship with him. Praise the Lord. A renewal of covenant reminds God of his promise to us to perfect us in his son, to conform us to his image, to ultimately give us new bodies in heaven. It also reminds us that we're his children. Here we are being strengthened with this meal to be sent out to do his will in the world. And as this strongly identifies both our position in Christ and God's love for us, we are in fact truly reminded that God has taken hold of us so that we may take hold of him for that upward call 
in Christ Jesus. So if you're a baptized believer, you are welcome to come and to sit with your Heavenly Father in perfect peace, won by the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for placing us in one body, Christ. Remind us of our salvation in Jesus and also how we are, making more like, we are being made more like Jesus for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. So equip us to serve you acceptably with reverent fear, reverent fear, and reverent and godly fear that we may see this world saved. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Psalm 79, verses 41 and 42. The children of Israel are rebuked for limiting God because they did not remember his power. So the charge is to go out this week knowing that you are his child, having full-on gift of the Holy Spirit. So don't limit the power of God in your lives as you hold on tight with your arms around his neck. Now receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and amen.